Locked away in attics, basements, and dark corners across the world are stories of beings and beasts that hide in the night. These are those stories. This is the Sleepless in Suburbia podcast. I'm Brooke, case manager for our team, and this is the audio recap for case 118, The Leather Bell Book. The summer has been hot. Midwestern humidity seems especially brutal this year, which is kind of the running trend for 2020. Brutal. The heat hasn't deterred us from gathering by the moon's light to chat cases and all things spooky. That's exactly what we were doing a few weeks ago at Prue's. Crickets sang, a full moon hung lazily overhead, 90s music played in the background, and thankfully, no obsidian orbs for eyes, black-eyed children, invited themselves to our gathering so far. Are we ready for our next case, I asked swatting at a mosquito and spilling Pinot Noir down the front of my white tank top? What about the possessed Kindall and Franklin? Ford suggested from the shadows of the fire pit flames opposite me. I guess the thing randomly disappears, pops up after days of being MIA. They even think it shaved the family dog. We can head back to Madison or meet with the Wyndhams offsite to discuss our findings on the black-eyed kid outbreak. Low found evidence that the vortex of concentrated energy might be caused by... Lark cut Claire off. I'm not talking about those freaks tonight, okay? Why can't we just let that case go? Lark said, standing up and walking towards the sliding glass door. Once inside, shutting the door a bit harder than necessary. She's going to have to face it at some point, Low mumbled. But it doesn't have to be this case, Prue said dipping a pita chip into her famous homemade hummus. What about that wish book? You know, the one that's broken bones and caused fires? I'll look for it in the... Everyone froze, scanning the darkness of the backyard for a sign of what had broken the stick. Nothing for a long moment, and then feet moving towards us through the night. Inside, now, Prue hissed. Ford stood, taking just a step or two before something knocked her legs out from under her, and she landed with a painful-sounding thud on the deck. Knox! Prue laughed, half-scolding, half-pulling the lick-happy dog out of Ford's face. How do you even get outside? She asked, letting the dog inside. So tell me about this bitchy book, Ford said, pouring a heavy-handed glass of pink Moscato. Here's what we knew about the Leather Bell book from our inbox. The email read, subject line, My book is killing people. Maybe. You guys, I'm drowning here. Everything was going great. I landed the promotion at work. My boyfriend Marcus finally proposed after four years of dating. And the house I love suddenly went on the market. Everything was perfect until all the little fires and accidents began happening. At first, it didn't seem like an issue. Small little things happening to the people around me. Then the tiny little things, the accidents, you know, turned into hospital visits and near-death experiences. Now I'm scared to not write in the Leather Bell book. Will it decide to come after me with full force if I do? What have I done? Cassie. Property details. Cassie Delvo lives in Westerville with her fiancé Marcus, she mentioned him in her email, and three cats, Winnie, Sarah, and Mary. Yes, like the Sanderson sisters from Hocus Pocus. Together they live in Cassie's dream home, the one she talked about spontaneously going on the market. 
The house really did look like a dream. It had this cozy cottage vibe nestled into a larger city. The over-an-acre lot had a lush garden, willow trees, and even a she-shed in the backyard that looks exactly like the main house. Walking onto the property, you feel transported to an English garden or even a fairy tale. Team update. Lowe's daughter Maggie has been training for a Warrior Woman 5K, and the race fell during our time at the investigation. So Lowe would sit this one out. She's also finished compiling her research from the Wyndham's West Bank hideaway case, so we'll be bringing you those updates next week. If you haven't listened to that case, it's 1.15. Lark is still splitting her time between her dorm and her couch. Her latest distraction from the anxiety lingering from the hideaway is finishing every book on her TBR list to be read. So if you're looking for some summer reads, she's got you covered. Ford broke her little toe. How? (sighs) Tripping over her son's football gear. I know, I wish there was a more exciting story involving chasing goblins or attempted alien abduction, but it was nothing but a good old-fashioned klutzy moment. My sleepwalking is back. It's not as bad as it's been in the past. Child Brooke used to wake up in the neighbor's flower bed, but twice this week I've woken up not in bed. One night, I woke up sitting on the kitchen counter, and the other, I woke up sitting on the stairs to the basement. Claire has started baking as an outlet for her nervous energy. Bless her heart, Claire can't cook to save her life. But her baking actually is pretty good. The last time she came over to watch The Order on Netflix, she brought gooey butter cake. It was freaking awesome. Like if it were possible to marry a baked good, that would be the one. Prue is still visited by something at night. Black-eyed kids, aliens, an entity from another property. We have guesses, but it's clear whatever is hanging around doesn't feel like leaving. She's meeting with an energy healer next week, and she's having someone from the local Methodist church bless her house. We'll keep you posted on how the clearing of Prue and her home go. Historical Society Research Our investigation landed us first at the Litchford Historical Society. I was excited to try my hand at the research side of things for once. With the help of Mabel, Litchford Historical Society's oldest historian, we pieced through the area's supposed supernatural past. Before witch trials ripped through Salem, accusations of witchcraft and necromancy were made in Connecticut. In the fall of 1659, seven-year-old Abner Davis fell ill after playing with friends in the fields on the edge of the township. While in bed, drenched in sweat, Abner cried out for his mother to help him, claiming, quote, Good wife would. She torments me wickedly. She chokes me. Help me. Please help me. Before she peels the flesh from my bones. By dawn, Abner was dead. His parents claiming that he appeared to shrivel before their eyes, his skin drying up like cracked ashen willow bark. His parents went door to door, calling the townspeople together in the meeting house. Before noon, all able-bodied men, women, and children gathered together in the one-room meeting house. Abraham and Alice Davis removed a cloth from a table, revealing their son's lifeless body. You! Alice shouted, pointing towards a woman in a hunter green cloak seated in the middle of the room. You, good wife Wood, through Spectre, killed my Abner. 
She describes sitting with her son into the early light of morning as he fought for his life against an invisible attacker, then asked, Come forward if you've suffered attacks from this witch's specter. One by one, children stood around the meeting hall. The daughter of Cyrus Green claimed that Goodwife Wood, along with three of her cohorts, attacked her in her sleep. Another child claimed that witches watched him from the walls as he tended the fire. Five children in total claimed to be under some sort of spell brought on by Goodwife Wood. Witch! Someone shouted from the back of the room. Constance Wood was led from the meeting house, hands and feet bound with rope, and placed in stocks in the center of town. Constance stood quiet, eyes averted towards the ground, as townspeople threw rotted food and animal excrement at her. The Davises demanded she share the names of her fellow witches, promising a less severe punishment for turning in the others. This was a lie, and a promise that the Davises couldn't keep. In 1642, Connecticut's colonial government declared witchcraft one of their 12 capital offenses. The only punishment for even being accused of practicing witchcraft was death. When Constance refused to speak, hysteria swept the town, pinning townsperson against townsperson. Accusations of communing with the devil flew. Within 24 hours, six women, one man, and Constance Wood were sentenced to trial. They were stripped nude and searched for a third nipple used to feed a demonic being or their familiar. With no third nipple found on any of their bodies, they were led in a single-file row to the river. On the riverbank, the accused witches had their hands and feet tied together. Constance watched. Some claimed she was muttering to herself. As one at a time, each of the accused was thrown into the river. If they were indeed witches or powerful enough dark magic practitioners, they would be able to save themselves from the water, but then they would be burned at the stake. What was Constance saying in the moments leading up to her death? Some believe she was praying for those being tortured before her. Others thought she put a curse on the town or those who led her to her watery end. Claire found an old journal written by Patience D., claiming that Constance recited a spell of protection to guard other witches and their future generations. In less than an hour, eight people drowned in the river. Over the coming days, bodies began to show up tangled along the river's edge and on banks. In total, six bodies were burned and buried in unmarked graves in the woods. The bodies of Constance Wood and a woman noted only as Esther were never found. I pulled up a current map of the area. Cassie's house sat less than two miles from the river, meaning this colonial witch hunt might have taken place very close to her backyard. On-site interview recap. We arrived on a drizzly day. Cassie greeted us with a huge warm smile. She wore black leggings, a denim button-up shirt with sleeves rolled up above her elbow, leopard print ballet flats, and a faded leather book in hand. She looked fantastic. Is that the book from your email? Prue asked, pointing to the book now sitting on Cassie's lap. It is, she nodded. I'd love to check it out, Prue said, reaching towards our hostess. No, Cassie said, tucking the book under her leg. You can't touch it. It's mine. It chose me. Well, this had taken a quick left turn from the woman in the email asking for help. 
Can we unpack that a little bit? I asked, reaching for a plate of cookies on the table in front of us. These are lovely, I smiled, hoping a little flattery would smooth away some of the ruffled feathers. They're vegan, Cassie replied, a perfectly polished smile back in place. Yum. Lo will be sorry she missed out. She and her daughter are vegan. I took a bite, surprised by how tasty they were. So you said the book chose you? Cassie nodded, nibbling at what looked to be a snickerdoodle-inspired cookie. The book had crossed her path by accident. She'd been hopping from garage sale to garage sale with her mom, looking for treasures and other people's castouts, when they came across an estate sale. Everything in the house had to go, so the duo spent a great deal of time scouring each room. On the second floor of the Dutch Colonial, tucked in the closet of a dust-covered room, was a dingy, rosebud-covered hat box. Cassie untied a dark purple silk ribbon, cutting away several strips of masking tape and pulling off the lid, revealing an interesting collection of items. Inside were handfuls of white feathers, various dried herbs, a skeleton key, granules of what could have been sand, salt, or maybe sugar, and under all of that, a leather journal wrapped in matching leather cord with a single bronze bell tied to the end. The second she laid eyes on the journal, she knew she had to have it. The auction house hosting the estate sale sold the hat box and all of its peculiar contents to Cassie for $5. That evening, she poured herself a glass of mead and curled up with her cats to read through the journal. Please make Jacob love me. Help me be as beautiful as my sister. I want to be just as smart as that fink Richard Neely. Page after page of wishes, dreams of the perfect figure, the most eligible husband, any husband, forgiven debts, a child, a new horse, requests written in the book like one would jot down a grocery list. Some of the requests sounded like they were made as far back as, I don't know, the 18th century, while the ones towards the back of the book could have been written by anyone alive today, Cassie said, thumbing through the pages. When did you first write in the book? Claire asked. That night, Cassie answered. Maybe it was the mead talking, but I figured, why not? What was the harm in writing down a wish in a book of wishes? We listened, Claire jotting down detailed notes in the little purple spiral she always carried in her purse as Cassie brought us up to speed on everything the book had done for her. The dream house coming on the market at just the right time, within a week of Cassie writing it in the book, was because the elderly woman living in the house died. The story in the Westerville Herald was she tripped over a rug and tumbled to her death down the basement stairs. Was it just a tragic accident? Maybe. Four days after writing... Marcus proposes to me. On one of the book's pages, Marcus did just that, proposed. Elated, Cassie called her best friend Hannah, shocked to find her in tears. Hannah's husband, we'll leave his name out for privacy reasons, had left her for another woman. And not just any woman. Her husband had left her for her younger sister. Yet another horrible coincidence? Cassie was up for a big promotion at the law firm, where she's worked for six years. 
This was an important next step on her path to making partner, but it wouldn't be easy. There was another person up for the promotion, a guy who'd been with the firm for eight years and had logged considerably more hours in the courtroom during high-profile cases. In the book, she wrote, I beat out, name redacted, for senior associate. Nothing happened. In fact, Cassie thought this was the one time writing her hopes and dreams in the book wouldn't work. More than two weeks later, while getting ready for work, a news report caught her attention. A junior associate at a well-known law firm, her law firm, was found badly beaten unconscious in an alley behind his condo building. He spent two months in the hospital recovering, leaving Cassie as the only option for the promotion. She beamed. The day I signed the contract for senior associate, happiest day of my life. Don't tell Marcus. So when something good happens for you, it's at the expense of someone else you know, Claire asked, looking up from her notebook. I mean, it's just little snafus for them. Nothing major, she waved her hand. That man was in a coma for over two weeks. I'd call that a bit more than a snafu, Prue said. Don't forget about the deadly fall, Claire added. And that wasn't all. If she wrote her wishes in the book, it seemed the book would find a way to make them a reality. She wanted to stay in a particular beachfront hotel while on vacation on the Gulf, but the hotel was booked. What did she do? If you guessed, wrote about it in the book, you've earned a gold star for this recap. Three days before her vacation, she received a call from the hotel. A school group had canceled their trip because nearly the entire band had come down with norovirus, leaving many rooms available. Sometimes those smaller things. She wrote that her favorite vegan bakery started making pumpkin cream bars. The next week, her mother's refrigerator broke, spoiling all the contents inside. That evening, Cassie saw a social media post that the pumpkin cream bars were back for a limited run. Big or small, if Cassie got her way, someone else had to suffer. There were too many instances to overlook. Even after an afternoon of chatting, Cassie would show us the book from a distance like story time in elementary school, but she wouldn't let us touch the thing. In fact, she carried it with her room by room, showing us where an array of haunted happenings have taken place. When Marcus arrived home from work, he pulled Claire aside. He was incredibly worried about his once-loving fiancé. Sure, she'd always been a type A, but things had gotten intense over the past few weeks. The book went with her everywhere, resting under her pillow at night and even sitting on the frame of the shower sliding glass door. Once, while Cassie was asleep, Marcus moved the book from under her pillow, hiding it in a box of trash bags in the pantry. A little while later, a piercing headache jolted him from his sleep. He opened his eyes to Cassie, nose to nose with him. She commanded, fetch the book. The book had a pull over Cassie, like a rising full moon. It could pull her towards bliss or towards oblivion. Haunted Happenings Besides the wishes granted by the Leather Bell book, other activity flared up in the house. The cats began hissing at thin air, hair raised up on their backs, before running to hide under a piece of furniture. 
In fact, Winnie had started bolting out the front door to escape, and she'd never been an escape cat in the past. On four separate occasions, the couple was woken up in the middle of the night to knocks at the front door. But looking at their ring camera footage, the porch was empty. They've heard the sound of crying from the basement. Marcus has seen a lanky shadow figure watching him from the corner of the living room, bedroom, and basement. Cassie's mother was scratched down her back when she tried to sneak the book from the house. On a handful of occasions, Cassie's woken up in a panic coughing fit. Marcus says during these episodes, it sounds like Cassie is choking. He describes it as a gurgling sound. Burners on the stove turn on on their own. Friends visiting the house feel watched. And Marcus's three-year-old niece refuses to come into the house. Investigation recap. With so much possibly tied to the book, we requested it be left in the house while the couple left for the evening. This did not go over well. It's like a switch flipped in Cassie. One second she was smiling, chatting with Claire about the upcoming season of Big Brother. The next she was borderline furious. How dare we ask her to leave her book? It wasn't ours. It was hers. We didn't want to know what would happen when the book realized she was gone. She yelled at us, pacing around the living room like a feral animal. Poor Marcus looked like he wasn't sure if he should comfort her or run. After a 10-minute rant with no end in sight, I mentioned that maybe an investigation wasn't the best idea. Prue chimed in, offering to put her in touch with a couple of other teams, which Cassie may find as a better fit. Cass, please, Marcus said through clenched teeth. Things are so... we need this. If looks could kill, Marcus would have fallen to the beige carpet at that exact second. No one asked you, Marcus. Babe, please, he said, gently touching her arm. Whatever, she snapped, yanking her arm away from him. Let's go. Setting the leather bell book on the coffee table, she stomped towards the front door. The intense shift in her energy felt like cosmic whiplash. From the front porch, we watched the couple bicker down the brick walkway, Marcus promising a wonderful staycation, complete with couple's massage and pedicures. With the truck out of sight down the street, Prue turned, grabbing the research pack. Whoa, ready for this? Truth? I had no idea. With only three of us on location, we just needed the one research pack, since we'd be investigating together. Our single research pack included three digital voice recorders, digital camera, complete first aid kit, three flashlights, some protein bars, two cell phone chargers, holy water, though I wished we'd brought more, and one batting glove, probably left there after James promised me he wasn't playing with our equipment, so if you're listening to this kid, you're busted. Research pack in hand and every finger crossed that Cassie wouldn't show up early with another fury-enraged confrontation, we began our investigation. These are our experiences. Sneezing. Lots of sneezing. Did I mention I'm allergic to cats? I find them cute. I want to snuggle them. 
but man, do they do a number on the old nasal passages. We should upload the audio from our digital recorders so we can play the sneezing drinking game. Every time you hear, (coughs) not a ghost, Brooke, and then the time, you drink. Depending on your drink of choice, you'll either be tipsy, hydrated, or incredibly caffeinated super fast. A lot of locations take a bit to warm up. To settle into its haunted routine, this was not one of those locations, and it started with Prue. Once in the house, she went straight for the book, picking it up and promptly dropping it to the floor, rubbing her hands together. It shocked me, she said, walking past me towards the kitchen. A minute later, she returned with two wooden serving spoons. Sitting on the floor, she used the spoons to unwrap the cord, the tiny bell chiming with the movement. With a little more finagling, the book was open. Then, the smoke detectors blared. Claire was the first to smell the smoke and found the empty dining room table had a fire burning in a circle at its center. A glass of water doused the flames for a second, but they shot back to life taller than before. In the living room, a thunk came from the window, and then another. I pulled back the sheer curtains just in time for another thunk. A black bird hit the window and fell on the ground with the others. Another bird. Fire's back again, Claire yelled over the sound of the kitchen faucet. Prue closed the book. With spoon hands, she shut the cover, pushing it under the coffee table. Thank God, the fire's out, Claire said, walking towards us with a glass of water. Thankfully, we experienced no more fires and no more kamikaze birds but we did capture this EVP while standing in the kitchen. Give it a listen. We wonder if that crying is the spirit of the poor woman who died in her fall down the stairs. Our next EVP of the evening was captured in the guest bedroom on Prue's digital recorder. What do you hear? Do you hear the sound of water splashing around? We checked and none of the bathtubs or sinks spontaneously filled with water. Google showed no pools or bodies of water within earshot and none of the neighbors close by had pools. All three of us were standing in the living room when things got, well, really interesting. It all happened so fast. At first, my brain didn't connect that what I was seeing was actually happening. There was nothing. Then, it was on her. A tall shadow figure, maybe eight or nine feet tall, rose from the shadow moving through a large bookcase. Claire screamed as it moved towards her. It scratched me, she said, grabbing her ribcage's left side. The shadow moved into the room, blocking out light from the window behind it, growling. A growl so loud we heard it at the moment and caught it on Prue's digital recorder. Here's the recording. Do you hear a growl? The growl was so intense, it gave me chills listening to it back. Whatever had joined us now was aggressive. It brushed past me, causing every hair on my arm to stand up on end and my stomach to twist into painful knots. 
Prue suggested she and Claire head outside for a breather, and I turned to follow the entity into the bedroom off the living room. Once in the bedroom, it felt like the air was alive with electricity. Rolling my digital recorder, I asked questions. Who's there? What's your name? Why did you hurt Claire? The door to the bedroom slammed shut, causing me to nearly jump out of my skin. The stomach pain became worse. Growing so intense, I sat on the edge of the bed, doubled over. I didn't hear it at the time, but during playback, we caught this disembodied voice. (laughs) It sounds to us like whatever was in the room with me found my pain pretty hilarious. Looking at the clock, it was shortly after 3 a.m. I flinched as my phone vibrated in my pocket. It was a message from Lark. Lark. B, call me now. Me. Little busy here. Shit has hit the fan. Lark. She's a witch. Me. Come again? I answered my phone on the first ring. Cassie is a witch. I'm not name-calling, like an actual witch. Something hasn't sat right with me since I heard her name Delvaux. I couldn't sleep tonight, so I started poking around in some old text Prue left me, and I pulled the phone from my ear, listening to something repeatedly hit the closed door. I gotta go, I said. Check your email, Lark yelled as I hit end. Another thump against the door. Then, nothing. I turned the door handle, opening the door towards me. Something hit my forehead hard enough I stumbled backward. A hardback book lay in a pile of books on the floor in front of the door. Whatever this was, was throwing books from the bookcase across the living room directly at me. I sprinted across the living room, out a side door, joining the others in the garden. Prue applied another strip of neon pink medical tape to Claire's side. You okay? I asked, opening my email on my phone. That jackass drew blood, Claire snapped. I looked up from my phone, surprised to hear her swear. Scratches and threes. Something from the demonic realm is in there, not just your run-of-the-mill shadow person, Prue said, handing a bottle of holy water to Claire. In my email was a photo of a page from a book with words handwritten on yellow pages. Lark found something, I said. Listen to this. We therein believe we are in dealings with a clan of witches, or at the very least, a faction of witchmongers, a coven who practices arts that are dark with the aim to torment unsuspecting holy parishioners. The DeVoe house shan't be trusted, for curses they cast on neighboring homes. Be wary, for they dance beneath the harvest moon with the blood of babes upon them. Pray, remember me, and God take mercy on our souls. If this text was correct, the Delvaux lineage contained at least a few witches. Energy like that, no matter how far removed, doesn't just vanish. Sure, It may grow weaker generation to generation if it's not used, but it doesn't dissipate completely. Does she even know? Prue whispered, reading the page over my shoulder. 
as a text alert from Lark popped up on the screen. Oh my god, she and I said together. Wrap up. The text from Lark was another picture. She'd kept digging after I hung up on her, unearthing something astonishing. In the image was a worn page, tattered around the edges, with a list of names written in fancy script. The top of the page read, Fleet Manifest 1646. The sixth name down on the handwritten list, Esther Delvaux, traveling with Grace and Eliza Delvaux. That was enough proof for us. But how do you tell someone that they date back to a coven of witches from the 1600s? The following morning, we returned to Cassie's house, finding her sitting on the front porch, scribbling away inside of the leather bell book. She looked relaxed. Not a hint of the agitated woman we'd seen the night before. Marcus brought us all coffee, and after he disappeared back in the house, we shared what we'd found with Cassie. Everything that we'd found. Witch. You think I'm related to some witch from a million years ago, she laughed. That's crazy. You're crazy. As crazy as a book which grants you wishes while taking away from those around you, I asked. She shook her head, running her fingers over the faded leather of the book's spine. Coincidence, she said quietly. I almost couldn't hear the word. That's the center of your paranormal dumpster fire, Prue said, pointing at the book clutched in Cassie's grip. Your family's energy, paired with the ancient incantation of the book, is like a match and gasoline. There were a couple of things going on at Cassie's house, but it all came back to the leather bell book. It was serving as a beacon to all sorts of unsavory manifestations. As long as the book remained in Cassie's possession, we couldn't offer solutions for clearing out the collection of paranormal activities. The book was also tapping into the DNA of Cassie's ancestors, awakening a part of herself that had been asleep. The problem was, despite the negative seeping into her life and the lives of those around her, Cassie didn't want to release the book. She asked us to leave. We were stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like anything, you can't help someone who doesn't want or feel like they need said help. Since we left Westerville, Pruse called her a few times. The first time, Cassie hung up on her and then stopped answering altogether. My emails to her went unanswered. Well, until last week, when they bounce back like the email address no longer exists. This morning, we received the following message in our Instagram DM from Marcus. It read, Please keep trying to reach out to Cass. I don't know if you can help her, but it's not safe for me to be there anymore. I'm crashing with a buddy until I figure out my next move. Loving her isn't the question. The issue is... And it's so hard to explain, but I think there's a part of her, or maybe it's the book, that wants to hurt me. If you can't get through to her, perhaps you can find somebody who can. This far out from the investigation, we'd hope Cassie would accept some help. Dangerous things can happen when supernatural powers swirl together, especially in untrained hands. With the paranormal dumpster fire still raging in Westerville, we are unable to close case 118. We've reached out to Sybil, a Wiccan friend of the show, to see if she can offer Cassie any support. We'll update you as we can. 
If you want to check out some of our pictures from the Leather Belt bookcase, listen to some EVPs, and stay up to date with everything happening behind the scenes, you can stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Sleepless Suburbia Pod. We will be back next week with another case. Until then, thanks again for listening to Sleepless in Suburbia. If you enjoy our cases, please make sure to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure to subscribe so you get our new case each week. And before we sign off, there's something that we want to introduce you to, something that we found that we're really enjoying. If you're looking for something true crimey to listen to, check out the Basic Murder Babes podcasts. They're fantastic. Here's a word from Kelsey and Sierra. Hey, y'all. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Sierra. And we're the hosts of Basic Murder Babes, a true crime podcast. We are best friends divided by 300 miles who call each other every week for girl talk and murder stories while unwinding with some drinks. And we record our calls for your enjoyment. If you love coffee, hard seltzer, nostalgic emo music, saving turtles, Gilmore Girls, murder documentaries, or conspiracies, then you're basic. And you'll love our podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and look for new episodes every Wednesday.